Great. Well, let's get started. Father, thank you for the book of Colossians, your word through your servant Paul. And so we will talk about Paul writing and Paul saying, but ultimately we realize these are your words breathed through Paul by the Holy Spirit for the Colossians, but also for us. And that even as we sang, your ancient words that have come down to us through the ages are still as true and inspired to us today as they were to this little tiny church in this little city of Colossae, led by a Greek man who met an inmate with a free heart. What a gift to speak your word and to hear it today. That's why we're here, to hear from you. So help me, Lord, run your words deep into the hearts of my church family and myself, and may we receive it with gladness and an anticipation of obeying and then a rejoicing of the fruit that you will produce in us through it. So good. All in Christ. Amen. Well, the cool thing is, is that Colossians could be considered a sister book with Ephesians, but also Philippians, and then you could throw in there the book of Philemon. Some people call these books, these four that I just mentioned, the prison epistles, because Paul writes from the same place of the letter we just came out of. So he wrote a letter to the Philippians somewhere 62 to 65 AD, and he also wrote a letter during that same time period to the Colossians. So we're going to see some... Um, consistent themes that are going to run parallel uh, to the book of Philippians that we just came out of. And much like the book of Ephesians, Colossians is split almost perfectly in half. It hinges right in the middle. And so the first two chapters are dedicated to truth about God, and then the second two chapters are how those believed truths are lived out in the life of those who have faith that God has said them. And then much like Philippians, Colossians is a book that exalts Christ as the preeminent one, the center of everything. The primary, the purpose of this letter to the Colossians is to show Christ as preeminent. He's over everything, and therefore, Paul is urging his readers, us, to put Christ in the center. He is the center of everything. Make him the center of your life, and keep him there. The letter was written by Paul, and he says, Timothy. And it appears that Timothy was more like a scribe kind of assistant, so he says, This is from me and Timothy, but then he uses a personal pronoun throughout the rest of the letter. I, me, my. It was written to these faithful Christians in this town of Colossae. And although we don't know the extent, there was definitely some heresies that were pressing in on this little church that undermined the significance, what it means that Christ is the preeminent one. 
And do we need something else? Or is there something else we've missed? Or is there something else to be added? Or do we need something else? Are we falling short? Is there another secret? Do we need another thing? And Paul is like, absolutely, positively not. There's a lot of application in here for us as well, because I think that is the temptation of the modern church. Is there something else? Is there something new around the corner? Is there something for us to apply? Should we be a little bit more sensitive to this philosophy or that philosophy? And Paul is going to tell us, as he did the Colossians, a resounding no. Christ is preeminent. He is the center. Organize your life around him and you shall not fall short. And it is most likely that a man named Epaphras, and he is mentioned in chapter 1, verse 7, came to believe in Christ while Paul was ministering in Ephesus. So after Epaphras comes to Christ, he returns to Colossae and a church was born there. In some ways, we're putting some puzzle pieces together between Epaphras coming to Christ in Ephesus, going back to Colossae, and then a church being born there, but it's our understanding that Paul never actually visited Colossae. But he received word from Epaphras about how this church was doing in their um, growth and development. So based on Paul's writings, a few other passages in the rest of the New Testament, it seems that the church very well may have been established and then shepherded by Epaphras. At minimum, we know for sure that he serves faithfully using his gifts to serve these Christians in the Colossian church. So later in the letter, chapter 4, verses 11 through 12, Paul makes a list of men who say that he says they're fellow workers of the circumcision, which means these are fellow Jews that are laboring among with me. And he says, who have faithfully served alongside of me. And in this list, he does not bring up Epaphras. But rather, he describes him to the Colossians as one of you. So these things kind of combined together makes us believe that Epaphras was a Gentile convert. Now, why do I tell you all that context? Well, one... It serves in our understanding of the truth of the letter, and we ought to know the full counsel of God. That's one really good thing. But the other thing is, even as I prayed in the beginning, here's this Gentile that goes to Ephesus for whatever reason and runs into this really strongly opinionated, truth-giving Jew and receives the truth of the good news of Jesus Christ and his life is changed. And then he goes back to his home. Can you imagine? I don't know how long he spent with Paul. Probably not that long. Goes back to Colossae with a little bit of news that he has. And what we believe to be 10 years later, he's writing to Paul about his church who is loving each other really well. It's encouraging, and it should encourage us. Here's this guy 
And we're still hearing about them thousands of years later. And the second reason I mention it is because it serves as a real life, life analogy of exactly what Paul is praying to happen for the Colossians in this letter. I want you to keep Christ center and take him out to the world. And you could add on the end of this, just like your pastor Epaphras did for you. So in chapter 1, this is where we're going to be today. We're going to hustle to get through it. But it's broken up into three sections. The first section is prayer and thanks. The second section is the preeminence of Christ. And then the third section I call pressing in. So let's jump in in this first section. Really starting, I kind of gave you a little bit about the introduction, starting in verse 3. And Paul starts off by expressing gratitude to God in his hearing of the Colossians' faith, their commitment to him, and then the way their beliefs are manifesting themselves, the way that they, are, the way they believe in what they say they believe are really tangibly manifesting themselves in their love for one another. So Paul illuminates the truth and the hope that the Colossians have found in the gospel which has come to them, which they have believed by faith, which is bearing fruit and increasing in them, Paul says, just like it is around the entire world. So here's what he says, verse 3. We always thank God the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ when we pray for you, since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus And the love that you have for the saints because of the hope laid up for you in heaven. Of this you have heard before in the word of the truth, the gospel, which has come to you as indeed in the world it is bearing fruit and increasing as it also does among you. Since the day you heard it and understood the grace of God in truth, just as you learned it from Epaphras, our beloved beloved fellow servant, He is a faithful minister to Christ on your behalf and has made known to us your love in the Spirit. So again, the truth of the gospel comes to this unbelieving Gentile, Epaphras, through a believing Jew, Paul. And then Epaphras understands the grace of God, believes it, ministers it to others, And over a period of time, a church is born. Here's what we should learn from that. The gospel, the good news of Christ, believed as truth in faith, always produces fruit. Always. When the good news of Christ is believed and acted upon, it always produces produces fruit always gives us hope you believe this word as God's truth and then say I am going to do what you call me to do even when it does make sense and it will produce fruit in your life team and so here is the truth that Paul is praying for the Colossians and is universally true when the gospel comes to us 
and we understand the grace of God in truth and we believe it by faith, it will produce fruit in our lives. If it is heard, but it is not producing fruit, it is because it is not being believed as truth, nor is it believed in faith. And so if you're having trouble with fruit production in your life, joyfully go back and say, Lord, I want to believe what you say in faith and then live out the truth of your word, even though it may not make sense to me. Guaranteed result, according to the word of God, not my opinion, you will experience fruit in your life. And so that's why Paul prays confidently and gives thanks for the genuineness of the Colossians and for their faith, knowing it is genuine. Because, he says, Epaphras is telling me about the love that you have for one another. Your faith is producing fruit in your life. So he prays confidently. Now what does it mean for us to hear the truth of the gospel and obey it in faith. Those are good Christian words. What does that mean? Well, it means the same for us as it meant for the Colossians. It means that I believe the good news about Jesus and live according to the truth of the gospel. And maybe you guys can help me out. What is the truth of the gospel? I deserved wrath. I've been justified by grace. I've been counted righteous. I am rejoicing. My anchor is set in Christ. My future, even though things might not look good, is makes sense because Christ has told me about this. I'm anchored in Him. My circumstances are going to come and go. But my joy is in the fact that all the big questions in my life have been answered, short term and long term. So I'm rejoicing in God. I'm dead to sin. Right? And what? Love it. Activated to righteousness. And when I walk and live according to the truth of gospel, even if I cannot discern the outcome, is that big for you? Like, I want to control outcomes. Right? And if I think the gospel will help me obtain my outcome, Great, joyful obedience. But if I'm not sure, it's faith. That's true. Mike, I'm so proud of you, brother. (laughs) Or even if I believe by my own reasoning... That obeying the Lord is, this is going to be a disaster. But I do it anyway. I'm believing the truth and walking in faith in the gospel. When I live like I really am dead to sin and it has no hold on me. Regardless of my feelings or my perspective 
or my rationale and that I truly am activated in righteousness regardless of my upbringing, how I was raised, my personal experiences. All those things have sway on my perspective, but they do not have sway on my faith. And when in spite of those things, or maybe even because of them, I believe that I've been activated to a new life in Christ, and I can live, walk, think differently. I'm obeying the gospel. The truth of grace by faith. That's what it means to obey the gospel in faith. Or lastly, we use the word or the phrase anchored in the gospel. And so Paul continues his prayer, verse 9, From the day we heard, we have not ceased to pray for you, asking that you may be filled with knowledge of his will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding, so as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, that should sound awful familiar to us, fully pleasing to him, bearing fruit in every good work, and increasing in the knowledge of God, being strengthened with all power, according to his glorious might, for all endurance and patience, with joy, giving thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints of light. That's a good phrase, isn't it? That is a great culmination. This book is so packed We literally could take months to get through it. I was listening to another pastor teach on this passage, and he rhetorically asked, well, then you might say, well, why don't we just walk through it ever so slowly? And he says, well, we could take years, and by the time we get done, it becomes very topical, because by the time we get the book finished, some of you are in junior high school, and we have to go back and address what was at the beginning anyway. And so our goal, again, is to kind of go through and get the overview and the richness of and the depth of this book, and then you guys, in your time at home, with the other 150 whatever hours you have in the week, can press into some of these details, church. But this is a very densely rich theological book. Filled with knowledge, spiritual wisdom, understanding, walking in a manner worthy, fully pleasing to Him, fruit in all good works, increasing in knowledge, strengthened with power, given endurance and patience with joy, culminated with giving thanks to God the Father who has taken you from a realm of darkness into the realm of light. And Paul is seeking through prayer that the Colossians may continue to anchor up in the gospel. Filled with knowledge, spiritual wisdom, that they might walk in a manner worthy of pleasing the Lord. Giving thanks. Remember Philippians 1.27 said, Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. And so when Paul is again talking about this manner worthy of the Lord, this is a leveling up. When I was a a contractor a few years ago, uh, transits were really expensive. It's how how you get level from long distances apart. Well, I didn't have one of those. 
So I had about 50 feet of clear tube that I would fill with water and put one end over there and then bring the other end over here because water is self-leveling. And so you could get a far level from way over there to over here just by putting water in the tube and getting your equal distances. And so what Paul is saying is level up to the gospel. That's what's true over there, and your life ought to measure up over here. Level up to the gospel. Live out of the same manner in which you were saved. Live in a manner worthy of the Lord, leveling up with him. And you're going to be bearing fruit in every good work, and that's going to cause you to increase in knowledge and be strengthened in power, and you're going to have patience with joy. What does that make you? It makes you reasonable. You with me? This is last week. We become reasonable people. We're not chasing circumstances all over the globe like the rest of the world. And unfortunately, like some of our brothers and sisters in Christ who claim to have a God who's stable and stalwart and yet running all over the place. No, church, when we hunger down and we put our anchor in the gospel of Christ and we level up, Paul says, God says through Paul, grace, patience, peace, reasonableness. It's really good news. It's true. This is anchor language. And this life in the gospel results in thanks and gratitude. Again, verses 12 through 14, giving thanks to the Father who has qualified you. We've been counted righteous. We've been justified by faith to share in the inheritance of the saints of life. If anybody's wondering about like Happy Pastor's Day, I don't even know if there's one of those, okay? But you could get a shirt like a jersey with on the back and it says Saints of Light. Isn't that a cool team name? Love it. He has delivered us from the dominion of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son in whom we have the redemption, the forgiveness of sins. Paul is coming to the end of his prayer and he ends with this kind of long version of in Jesus name. And he's saying that we have been delivered from the domain of darkness to the kingdom of his beloved son. And in him, we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. And this starts his section on the preeminence of Christ. So in verse 15, he starts out with he, or you could actually say who, because he's continuing from this kingdom of his beloved son in him, or in whom we have the redemption and the forgiveness of sins, who is the image of the invisible God. So in some Bibles, this section is titled the preeminence or the supremacy of Christ. And in these passages, Paul makes it extremely clear that Jesus is himself God. He is over all things. He created all things. He holds all things together. If there's a thing that is, Jesus made it. If there's things that still exist, he holds it together. The reason you do not fly off the planet is because literally Christ keeps us here. Everything holds together in Him. If Christ does not exist, nothing does. 
It's not a very long extrapolation to think this. If Christ doesn't exist in your worldview, then everything is open. Nothing exists. In this passage, Jesus is called the image of the invisible God, and he is also called the firstborn over all of creation. Let me continue. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. Father of the word we are reading, may these words not just be words. Run them deep into our hearts. And again, in this passage, he is called the image of the invisible God and the firstborn of all creation. And this term firstborn can kind of be confusing to us because of our modern terminology. It's hard for us to understand that anything other than born first is its meaning. A person who didn't exist and now does. By the way, this very verse gets extrapolated by many cults to try to prove their point. Jesus didn't exist. God created him. Now he exists. But the phrase doesn't actually mean born or even born first. Rather, firstborn is a statement of position and authority. Or as Paul says, preeminence. So lending strength to this is the phrases that both precede and follow these two titles. Image of God, the image of the invisible God, and firstborn from the dead. Image of the invisible God means that he is full and complete embodiment of what it means for God himself to enter into his created world. So Hebrews 12.3 says it this way, He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature, and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. Or as Paul says in verse 19, For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. He also says that he is the firstborn from the dead. And again, this doesn't mean the first one to come back from the dead. We have some other people, Elijah, some Elisha, and some other people raising bones and raising people from the dead in the Old Testament. But it means that he is the supreme one to come back from the dead. Or that he is the authoritative one from the dead. Or we could say it this way He is the only one ever that came back from the dead on his own authority. He is the firstborn of creation. He is also the firstborn of the dead. Paul is saying he's the ultimate. He's the beginning, creation, and from the dead, he's the end. He's the alpha and he's the omega. He is God himself. Jesus is Lord. Thereby, he is the only one properly positioned, fit, and authoritative, and qualified to accomplish 
verse 20. He is the only one that is able to reconcile to himself all things, whether in earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. Guys, a really great study that we're kind of glancing over, but you could spend a lot of time here. When Christ died on the cross, he didn't just reconcile us to himself, to the Father, although he did indeed do that, and that has a lot of meaning to us too. But Paul says that he reconciled everything in the planet and the universe. Everything that was destroyed by sin when Adam and Eve sinned and the earth shook and creation groaned. Christ fixed. He reconciles all things and makes peace. And in particular, that has meaning to us who are believers because it does mean that it applies to us and our relationship with the Lord. Deserving wrath, justified by grace, counted righteous. Verse 21 this one who is properly positioned and fit and authoritative and qualified, this preeminent one has made this true about us, church. You were once alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds. He has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. If indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven, and of which I, Paul, became a minister. This preeminent one is the one who has the power to reconcile us to God. And now we come to this pressing in section. Paul ends with this phrase of which I, Paul, became a minister. And in this last part, I think we really catch Paul rejoicing because the gospel is making significant headway in the life of the Colossians. And that's what his life is all about. Remember, we talked about this in Philippians. Paul's life is all about the gospel moving forward. So regardless of his circumstances, as long as the gospel's moving forward, Paul is rejoicing. Now he says, this preeminent one has rescued you because I planted a seed in Epaphras and regardless of my circumstances, I'm watching the gospel move forward and Colossians, I'm rejoicing in you because somehow I took part in that. He sees that his suffering is directly attached to their new birth and their growth and their spirits are being renewed and his spirit is growing and he wants more of it. He sees, man, look at what the gospel's doing in your life and I want to be more of what God's called me to be. He's rejoicing. So remember in Philippians, he states, what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel. And again, Paul is rejoicing because his anchor is deeply embedded 
in the truth going forward in the gospel. And that gives him great joy and a contented spirit. Remember, he's, he's got his anchor in. Bring it on. And then even in these dire circumstances, and he's contributing yet to the lives of the Colossians and ultimately to God's glory. So again, he says in verse 24, Now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake, and in my flesh I am filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body, the church of which I became a minister according to the stewardship from God that was given to me for you, to make the word of God fully known, the mystery hidden for ages and generations, but now revealed to his saints. To them God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of this mystery, which is is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Him we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we might present everyone mature in Christ. For this I toil, struggling with all his energy that he powerfully works within me. Paul is saying, I want to press in all the more. When Paul says, I am filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body, that is the church, he doesn't actually mean that there's something missing in the life of Christ and his cross work. What he's saying there is in all places there is a gap between people's lives and their understanding of the gospel. I want you to think about this with me here for a minute, team. The only way to get the gospel into the life of another person is suffering. Think about it. Inherent to the gospel is this truth. I suffer for the sake of somebody else. True? The only way to get the gospel into the life of somebody else is suffering. Some of you are looking at me like, prove it. Okay, let me try for a minute. I was watching a teaching series on how to, for pastors, elders, how to teach the Bible. It's by John Piper. It's fantastic. And it's in it, he says, people have asked him, how long does it take you to prepare a message? And he says, oh, about 45 years. In that light, some of you has asked me, how long does it take for you to prepare your sermons each week? The 15 to 20 hours is only the culminating portion. When I'm teaching you the gospel, this is true of Ian and anybody else who teaches, by the way, and I say, I deserve wrath I'm justified by grace. I'm counted righteous. In both my preparation at my desk and even as I'm presenting it to you, literally, pictures, names, instances are coming to my mind where I actually know beyond the shadow of a doubt I deserved wrath. And that I have been justified by grace. That has study meaning to me and even as I present it, 
I think you'd have no clue how true that is of me. The gospel came to me and rescued me from suffering. And then I put other things aside. Paul puts other things aside. Men who teach put other things aside to bring you the gospel. I say this humbly because I recognize how big of a gift this is, but I believe this is what Paul is saying. When the gospel comes to you through me, through my suffering, I am connecting you with Christ. And even at my desk, and now, the thought of that makes me go, I want to do it more. I want to do more of that. I Me and Ian had this conversation. I long to see Christ formed in you. Like, really? What a privilege, Lord. Give me more of it. This is what Paul is saying. The gospel came to me because of a suffering Christ. The gospel comes to you Because of a suffering Paul. God has given gifts to me for you. To make him known. Or he says to make the word of God fully known. Him we proclaim. Warning everyone. Teaching everyone with wisdom. That we might present everyone mature in Christ. To this end I toil. So in summary, Paul has prayed and given thanks for the Colossian believers, the faith that they have, the fact that they've been transformed from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of light, and that they have been transformed into the kingdom of his loving son in whom they have redemption and the forgiveness of sins. So he's given thanks and he has prayed for them. And then he has exalted and lifted up the preeminent one, Jesus Christ, God of heaven, come to earth to reconcile alienated evildoers to himself by his flesh and his death and then presenting them, presenting us holy and blameless before the Lord. And now Paul seems caught up in his own sermon. And he says, I have some part in connecting you to Christ through my suffering. And so help me God, I will do whatever it takes to get the preeminence of Christ into your life. That's what he's saying. I will do whatever it takes to get this preeminent one announced to the world. And in particular to this little church through this brother whom he loves, I long to see the preeminence of Christ planted in your life and bearing fruit. For this I toil. So here's the application for us, church. Some things to consider. The gospel has come to you and it is coming to you now. Do you understand the truth of it? 
Have you believed it with faith unto action, unto fruit? Maybe you've realized, I've never, I've never done that. I've never committed my life to that. I've never said, no, his truth is above mine. I mean, I've, I've kind of said that's a good idea. And then I, I weigh it with mine throughout my life. But I've never said, no, I will make you preeminent in my life. I, I'm, com- I'm committing myself to you. Maybe you've never done that. Now's the time to do that. The gospel is coming to you. The good news that you deserve wrath, that you've been justified, counted, you're dead to sin. This good news, do you believe it? Maybe you might ask yourself, in what ways am I not living in light of the truth and believing the gospel by faith? Are there areas in my life that I've held out and I say, yeah, I'll believe you in these areas. Those are nice and comfortable. But I, I, I don't know about this one. Are those, those areas that you've held out, that you've planted your flag and said, this part belongs to me? Second question or application for us, does Christ have preeminence in your life? If the answer to that question is yes, then rejoice in it. Give gratitude. Thank Him for His banner flying over you. Rejoice and tell people with your mouth. Tell your face and invite your body to join you. If Christ has preeminence in your life, rejoice. If He doesn't, repent. Turn. Take the flag down. Snap the pole over your knee. Welcome Him into the dry and barren ground that you have kept Him out of. And allow Him to pour streams of living water into your life and watch fruit be produced. But the thing that you're protecting will bear no fruit on your own. Zero. Give it over to Him and watch Him take rule and reign. And it is scary. I'm not saying it's easy. But fruit will be born there. It will become a lush place. But if he does not have preeminence in your life or in areas of your life, repent and give those over to him. His banner will reign over you with love and grace. Let him have preeminence. And the last thing for us to consider is this. What are you willing to do to get the preeminence of Christ into the life of those around you. For sure, Paul is a pastor. He's been giving gifts, and his job is to make the Word of God fully known. But true, church, that's all of our jobs. Now, you might not do it publicly like I do it, but this church doesn't function because I do what I do. It functions because we all do what we all do. Yeah. How are you going to get the preeminence of Christ into the lives of those around you? Men, what are you willing to do? I'm talking to you young men too. This is just in general. Men, single, men. What are you willing to do to get Christ's preeminence into the lives of other people? Will you reprioritize your time? Will you structure your work schedule? Will you give up hobbies or pursuits or Movies or what will you give up? What are you willing to do? What will you pursue 
in order to get the preeminence into the life of other people. To this I toil. If Christ is the preeminent one. See, this question is attached to the first. If Christ is the preeminent one, this is optional. If Christ is the preeminent one, what am I willing to do to get his preeminence into the life of other people? Married men, what will you do to make the word of God more fully known to your wife and your kids and your co-workers? What are you willing to do to get the preeminence of Christ into the life of those that God has put you over? Women, what are you willing to do to get the preeminence of Christ into the life of your husband? What will you joyfully give up for the bigger prize? This thing that makes Paul rejoice, I'm seeing the gospel take root in your life And that's where my joy is. He calls the Philippians and the Thessalonians, you are my crown. All this effort, I'm watching the gospel flourish in your life. What will you do to see the gospel flourish in the life of your husband and your family? Your co-workers, your friend, your neighbor. The dominions that God has put you over. Children, Young ones still living at home? What are you willing to do to allow the preeminence of Christ to move forward so that other people see and they go, why is that kid so obedient to his parents? And he's joyful about it. What are you willing to do to get the preeminence of Christ into a world where kids do not obey parents in our world? Yeah? Little guys? And willing to believe and trust the Lord as I love and obey my parents and contribute to a a family team that boldly declares together, Christ reigns here. Hey, 18 years and under, you have a great ministry to proclaim the preeminence of Christ through the way you love and serve your family team. You do. What are you willing to do to see the gospel flourish in your home? Produce joy in your life like Paul had. The gospel has come to us. Christ is the preeminent one. What are we willing to do to get his preeminence into the lives of people around us? And may we do it joyfully for their sake. And for the glory of Christ, who gave everything to plant the preeminence of his kingdom in our hearts. Amen? It's true? It is true, King Jesus. And we're thankful to be under your banner. If we're not, continue to bring us in, joyfully resting ourselves, giving you preeminence in our lives and then running the ball as far up the field as we can in the time and the gifts that you've given us. For your glory, for the joy of the people that we love and serve, and for our joy alike, we say give us more of it 
And may you reign and show yourself and prove yourself to be king of the world through this group of people who is working and growing and loving you and loving each other for your glory and the fame of your name. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.